Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the value of digital health solutions in facilitating access to health services. While the emergency phase of the COVID-19 pandemic is now over, investments in digital infrastructure remain an important resource for health systems and for economies and societies at large. Like many countries, the European Union made significant investments in COVID-19 certificates to help people move around as safely as possible during the pandemic. You actually want us to believe that having a digital infrastructure that you have to basically utilize like a passport in order to be able to move around where you live is valuable? This is Dr. Tedros, uh, the Director General of the World Health Organization, the same World Health Organization that worked to cover up China trying to cover up what they did regarding COVID. And you actually want us to believe that a digital passport connected to our health records is necessary and good and valuable? Are you people insane? The answer is yes. Desperate on desperate on desperate to control your moves, control your maneuvering, to control your activities. They've made it quite clear that they want to determine how you move about. How much more do they have to do? Literally chain you to your desk? Because that's coming next. Tony, they're not going to really chain you to the desk when you can't leave your house because they decide that your cold is not properly under under control. Uh, what's the difference? No, no, no. Seriously, what's the difference? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What is going on, everybody? 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. That's the place to get it all. Become a supporter. Would greatly Greatly appreciate it. This is a story of what we knew about COVID, when, where, why, and how. This is the story of certainly how China, the Communist Chinese Party, cannot be trusted in any way, shape, or form. And this is the story of how criminal Dr. Anthony Fauci was and is and his connection to groups like the World Health Organization should be seen as a red flag to things we should not do. You did not properly warn the world. For the sake of clarity, you purposefully did not warn the world because it would make China look bad and you didn't want that. Now you want to be trusted? No. Let's take a look at what's been happening with the United States and China. But we have to go back in time a little bit. We go back to 2018, a grant proposal as reported, it was obtained by a group called US Right to Know, it was a freedom of information request. It reveals that there was an American virologist working with the Wuhan lab, you know, where COVID leaked. Now I I can't prove it. I admit I'm clear about this, I can't prove it. If you ask me, of course this did not come from a a, a, a a wet market. Now, wet markets, we may think of them as gross, but jumping, no. It is so much more understandable to say that here is this lab that was working with these coronaviruses and these bats 
this lab had a leak because they're communists and they don't know how to do anything. Literally nothing. And the, the, the virus leaked. And instead of letting the world know and shutting down China to travel, to try and contain it, they let people fly everywhere while they were buying up personal protective equipment. We called it PPE back in the day and then reselling it to people. They didn't care what happened to the Italians, uh, to, to, the, to the whole of Europe. They didn't care what happened to the United States or, or Southern America, or I should say South America. My apologies there. They didn't care. And when someone said, hey, what's this? They said, how dare you look at us? They flexed their muscles. Screw them. They did this. The World Health Organization covered it up. And in 2018, and it was clear and obvious that there was no trusting the Communist Chinese Party in 2018, like it was clear and obvious in 2015 and in 2010 and 2005 and 2000, because there's no trusting a communist. You had... Virologists working with this same lab had a plan to engineer a virus that resembled SARS-CoV-2. This is, of course, COVID-19. It was part of a research collaboration between the United States and China called Diffuse. Who was the project led by? EcoHealth Alliance. Who's EcoHealth Alliance? Because you know that name. EcoHealth Alliance received funding from the National Institutes of Health and routed that funding to the Wuhan lab to perform gain-of-function research. Haley Strack with the reporting on that. This is more of the reality that our federal government is not thinking. What, for what reason do these doctors have to engage in the gain-of-function research with the communist Chinese? The answer is none. Well, Tony, this way you can keep an eye on them. Keep an eye on them? That did not work out well at all. You do not give the Chinese an advantage, an opportunity. You don't give them technology. They're stealing it anyway. You don't give them intellectual property. They're stealing it anyway. You don't give them this support and you don't fund them. And it was Dr. Anthony Fauci who said he never funded the lab. The money went to his buddy at EcoHealth Alliance. The money then went to the Wuhan Virology Lab. This is what happened. We're not in the place of debate on this subject. And if you ask me, Tony, you sound hot about this. I don't know how I'm not supposed to be. Every day, it seems. Maybe it's every month. But every time we talk about this subject, we're, pre we're presented with more and more evidence of the brutality inflicted upon the people of the world and then we get people like Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization. That's his first name, by the way. His last name is very, very long, so they call him Dr. Ted or Dr. Tedros. We get confronted with, well, what we need are more checks and systems to keep you locked down. Wouldn't we all be better off if we just didn't fund the commies as they're trying to engage ways to create horrible situations for the rest of us? And wouldn't we be better off if we didn't listen to people who told us they could lock us down? So, yeah, I get hot on the subject. I admit. I admit. But you can't blame me, can you? I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Well, he didn't build hundreds of miles because if there's a board laying on the ground, they say that's a renovation. They call it a renovation. 
If there's two nails laying from 50 years ago, they say, oh, that was a renovation. These are very dishonest people, and you're always fighting them. And just a little note to Nikki. She's not going to win. But if she did, she would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes. And I could tell you five reasons why already. Not big reasons. A little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. But she will be under investigation within minutes. And so would Ron have been. But he decided to get out. He decided to get out. Now, Vivek, I don't think would be at all because he's perfect, right? So that's Donald Trump talking after the victory in New Hampshire. Victorious in New Hampshire like he was victorious in Iowa. The first non-incumbent to win both ever. That's a story. Tony Katz, great to be with you. The question is about that general election. And the question is, if Nikki Haley is an afterthought, why such an aggressive speech? And then, well, if again, it's all going to be about the general, what is the strategy there? Mark Lauder joins me uh, right now. He's the chief communications officer at AFPI, the America First Policy Institute, served as director of strategic communications for the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign team. A Hoosier, an Indiana guy, uh, spent much uh, of his uh, earlier career with then-Vice President uh, Mike Pence. Uh, before we get into the specifics of, of a general election, to which there are questions, let's talk about the this victory in New Hampshire and how we think uh, did it play out the way Trump's team thought it would. Hey, good morning, uh, Tony. Yeah, I, I think it did. You know, when you look at that margin of victory, it was the largest margin of victory, even bigger than Ronald Reagan in 1980, bigger than George W. when he actually lost New Hampshire uh, to John McCain by large margins. Uh, so it was an overwhelming victory. I do not see a path forward uh, for Nikki Haley right now. I mean, she's not competing in Nevada. And then when you get to South Carolina, her home state, the real clear politics average has her losing by 30. I mean, how do you lose your home state by 30 points and hope to continue? That argument is, of course, the same argument that was utilized on on Marco Rubio and was the end of his uh, presidential uh, campaign. Uh, I think she's hoping for some changes in polling as the days go forward. But let's talk about this spread, the 11 point spread for Donald Trump over Nikki Haley. Trump uh, hit expectations. If we take a look at the real clear politics average, Nikki Haley overperformed. Um, Trump's speech last night seemed instead of, hey, let's get that unity thing, what he did after uh, defeating Haley and, and Ron DeSantis in Iowa, it was much more personal, much more uh, ag- aggressive. Shouldn't the take be, hey, unity, I'm clearly the guy, this is clearly happening, let's go to work. Does the overperform by Nikki Haley create a problem for, for Trump world? I don't think so. When you look at when you look at the exit polling, when it was comes to Republican voters, you know, Nikki Haley got less than 25 percent of actual Republicans. She was relying on independents and Democrat leaning independents uh, to try to bring her across the finish line. And, well, that's not really going to be the case moving forward. So she, you know, she is a very uphill battle if you can't pull more than 25 percent of registered Republicans in a Republican primary. And and I think this was really more of just kind of like putting your foot down, uh, you know, when you have the lead in the fourth quarter uh, to say this game is over. Let's end it right now. 
talking to Mark Lauder, Chief Communications Officer for the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. That I, I've been discussing this exact thing uh, today, and it, it it seems obvious that there are a tremendous number of uh, Democrats, progressives, we can call them both or, or, or separate things, uh, that want uh, Trump. They've been gearing up for this, engaging this idea of Trump as dictator, engaging this idea uh, of Trump as a threat to democracy, which I consider all disgusting and despicable things to do. Uh, it's as if they want uh, the country in, in this level of, of frenzy. But there are those who feel that this is the easier lift, the easier beat. And while President Trump talks about, look at the polling, it shows that I beat Biden head-to-head. The polling shows that Haley does even a better job in, 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 in the head-to-head. So when you see these independents cross over, does that create issue for thinking that independents want somebody other than Trump? And does that lead to an issue gathering the voters together in a general election, which is far different than a primary? Well, I think the problem the problem for Joe Biden is that he is, uh, you know, he's so unpopular on all the issues. Uh, when you look, you know, go through the real clear politics average on issues, his disapproval, 60, 70 percent on every major issue that matters to the American people. And so when it gets to be, you know, a, a true head to head general election matchup, that's what he's going to struggle with you know, in the in, in a Republican primary. You know, obviously, the issue set is just a little bit different. And, you know, the fact that that Nikki can't pull the Republican primary voter, but she wants to be the nominee of the Republican Party. That's the challenge she faces. I asked about Trump. I didn't ask about Biden, but I loved how you turned that right there. You're a pro, Mark Lauder. The issue for Trump in gather in garnering the independent in a general, is that seen as an issue? And does the Trump team have a philosophy to how to overcome that? Well, yeah, that's that's an actually that's an even easier answer, because the one thing we didn't have in 2020 that Joe Biden didn't have a record. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to you know tag him with the uh, the issues that were created under uh, Barack Obama. You obviously aren't going to go back to his record in the fifth, you know, in the, in the Senate over the last 50 years. Well, he has a record now and it's a record that the people don't like. And so it's an easy contrast. You know, if you go back to that age-old question from Ronald Reagan, are you better off now than you were four years ago? The answer is no. People don't like immigration. They don't like the economy. They don't like inflation. And so it's an easy contrast that I think even a lot of independent, moderate voters are going to go, you know, maybe I don't love his all of his tweets, but I do like $2 a, gas, a gallon gas, and that's what I'm going to vote for. Uh, you would want that. You would you would believe that. Again, I'll say to you, we're not getting to the answer to my question about independents who have been told for the last three years from this horrific press corps that the man is a threat to democracy and overcoming that. What I will agree with you on wholeheartedly, Mark, talking to Mark Lauder, chief communications officer for the American First Policy Institute, is that Biden has issues. Those issues deal with the economy. Those issues deal with the southern border. Those issues are now about Israel. And then, of course, the fact that, you know, as as President Trump said, he can't string two sentences together. Nikki Haley is trying to make the claim that both Trump and Biden are are, are too old. It is people on CNN who have noticed, or not CNN, but, but people on the left who have noticed, hey, they may both be old, but Trump seems much more with it than Joe Biden. If you are the Trump team, are you capitalizing on the idea that Joe Biden isn't okay, or are you going to capitalize on the subject matter rather than the man? That just is self-apparent. 
Yeah, I think you do both. And the good thing is, though, is that if you just let his own performance, his own verbal missteps, his physical appearance speak for itself, many people are making that conclusion on their own. And you can stoke it a little bit and he'll help you do it. But I think ultimately it's going to come down to policies, because obviously I think if we had better policy results, if people weren't worried about the economy and immigration, they really wouldn't care about his age. They would take his fumbles and his bumbles. And, I mean, he's long had been full of gaffes and missteps throughout his entire career. Uh, so there, that's nothing new. Uh, but I think ultimately it's those policy results that people don't like. Then they add on the other factors after that. Is the Trump team going to continue to focus on Nikki Haley or act like she's not even there? Go take Nevada, where she really isn't campaigning, now that you bring that up. And then and then South Carolina, where she's in a, a deficit, and just act like this is theirs and focus that way. Or is it going to be a continued hit on Haley uh, all the way through? Well, I think you'll see, You know, again, we've got a month to go until, new, uh, until the South Carolina primary. If she truly stays in, and I'm not convinced that she will stay in that entire four weeks, she might give this thing a run for a week or so and then see the numbers aren't moving and be gone. Uh, He'll put his foot down in South Carolina to end it right here, right now, uh, you know, a month from now, if she waits. But he'll also be talking about Joe Biden. So I think he'll do both at the same time. But there's no way he's going to overlook South Carolina. He's going to want to end this thing right now, not even take it to Super Tuesday, because, again, that's a a lot of money, a lot of advertising that you could be saving uh, to, for Joe Biden rather than having to try to secure up the nomination. I think that pressure point is going to be a very interesting one to see how Nikki Haley responds to it. Mark Lauder from the America First Policy Institute Chief Communications Officer. Mark, always a, a pleasure. Indiana guy. We've had many, many a, a conversation. And so I wanted to make sure I, I, I brought you both sides of this this conversation regarding uh, Trump hitting on Haley uh, it, because there's a real argument to be made that says it doesn't make any sense. Don't bother. If it's all sewn up, if it's all wrapped up, if it's fait accompli, if you have all of this support from within the Republican Party, why are you paying attention to somebody who has no shot, has no chance. Now, the other side of that is uh, an opponent is an opponent, and until you win, you have to beat the opponent. So there are two sides uh, to this. But you can't act like this is all done, this is all set on the nominee, and then say, this person is a threat to me being, being the nominee. It, it does smack a little bit weird. So I wanted to bring you uh, both to that, and Mark Lauder certainly. Uh, from his time uh, with with Trump, from his time in in, in the White House, is going to give you uh, that that point of view. Uh, I also got into this conversation with Noah Rothman uh, over at at National Review. Now, Noah and I disagree on a great number of things. What I appreciate about him is that he's thinking, and I'm going to bring you that. And what's going on in the Middle East, specifically? How the Biden administration has not addressed the Houthi threat. Oh, sure, we've got the airstrikes going on now. How did we let it get this far? Those strikes, are they actually working as a level of deterrence? Meaning what is actually stopping Iran from engaging this war with us as we've been talking about it? My answer is nothing. Nothing's changed. 
We will break that down. That is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. I don't know if there's any question whether or not Joe Biden's policy in the Middle East has done us damage, whether Joe Biden's foreign policies in general have done us damage. Let's go back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let us discuss the Chinese weather balloon. Did we forget that we allowed this balloon to traverse the nation? Not only did we allow it, we never got the full story until recently that they knew it. They knew where it was. They knew it was coming. And their objective was to not tell us. It took two guys in Montana who happened to look up in the sky and say, Tommy, Tommy, what is that? I don't know. Paulie looks like a balloon. Tommy, that's a big ass balloon, Tommy. I mean, I mean, I've seen some balloons in my days. I've had some birthday parties. That's a big balloon. You sure? You really are right. That's a huge balloon. We should call somebody. You know what? You know what? Call Billy down at the police department. He'll know what it is. He'll know what to do. And that's how they figured out there's a damn balloon that came from China. And they knew when it launched and they knew how it traveled and they could have shot it down anytime. Oh, but they couldn't shoot it down over Montana because, as you know, all the people would get harmed. Then you take a look at October 7th and then you take a look at the Houthi rebels engaging in full on tact attacks on tankers on cargo ships the iranians are doing the same and all of a sudden there's a question about who controls the navigable seas i'm tony katz as i said good to be with you noah rothman joins us right now from national review follow him on the exit noah uh, c rothman you write about this more uh, than, than than most and, and following uh, a lot of this on on the national security side and really a, a conversation about foreign policy in, in general we have had agreements and disagreements uh this what w- was was you joe biden's provocative weakness as I understand, you know, you're taking the point or, or, or the position that the biggest issue with Joe Biden's foreign policy is that Joe Biden is unwilling to have a foreign policy that has any concreteness. Am I off base in your understanding? I would amend slightly because I do think Joe Biden has a foreign policy. It's a profoundly dovish foreign policy. I think he is even more so than Barack Obama committed to American retrenchment by which I mean withdrawing from a lot of the traditional commitments that the United States as the global hegemonic power has all over the world. That has been his policy, and that is provocative. I think he has demonstrated a willingness and intention and, a, and, and actually a, a, a efficacy in executing that imperative, just withdrawing from uh, hotspots in the world or where we have obligations and creating power vacuums in our wake. And that is provocative. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. That which we lose, someone else gains. And a lot of uh, revanchist, revisionist powers, Iran, Russia, a variety of other um, uh, extranational groups, transnational terrorist groups, they see an opportunity, an open window. It's not going to be open forever, and they're making the most of it. So this was an argument made, Noah, uh, when President Barack Obama went on what, what many called that world apology tour, right? He's in Egypt and other places, and he's, he's apologizing for 
America's actions. He's really apologizing for America's might. And the argument was that while maybe in the United States, that is seen as humility in other cultures, other nations, other uh, political philosophies, that is seen as weakness and something to take advantage of and exploit. I think we have seen that the desire to take advantage of and exploit Joe Biden's weakness, this same exact kind of theory uh, is going on in an unrelenting fashion. I think so. Um, there's something admirable and unique in the American character that it it is an anti-colonial power. It has always been one. It does not want to maintain and preserve foreign possessions, foreign entanglements uh, for the sake of national prestige, as much as a very cynical reading of American foreign policy on the on the far right and in the progressive left uh, believe. Um, the United States is not an imperial power. It has grand obligations across the, the planet Earth because we were bequeathed that obligation in 1945 uh, as a result of uh, the where the powers fell in the wake of World War II. It does us no good to bemoan the obligations that we inherited from the British, for example, with regard to, as you said in the, out, in the outset, preserving and guaranteeing the free navigation of trade lanes in in the seas that is the responsibility of the global hegemon and the global economic market the world market which has only existed since 1991 this is a pretty new feature it existed until 1914 took a big long break and then came back in 1991 and has produced unparalleled prosperity and a dramatic piece a piece that the world had never previously known go look at how many people died in wars prior to the beginning of this century and the end of the 1990s. It was a lot more than we have today. As much as we think this wor the world right now is, is so unstable and there's wars everywhere and people are dying all over the place, that is an ahistorical reading of our current environment. Right now we have an unprecedented level of peace and prosperity across the planet, which has lifted billions of people out of poverty. It's a miracle. And anything that comes after it will be suboptimal relative to our current condition. So it's the sort of thing you should seek to preserve. That's Joe Biden has very little interest in doing that. But so so it's funny that you that you phrase it in that way. We have less war now talking to Noah Rothman of National Review. Uh, you should check out his books, including Unjust Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. That's available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold, because what you would hear politically is withdrawal from Afghanistan, absolute failure, got Americans killed and left hardware by the billions for enemies to utilize. Uh, you could not deter uh, Russia from invading uh, Ukraine. And that has reached now levels of World War One uh, trench warfare stalemate, that this is going to be a war of attrition involving human bodies that Ukraine has to understand that it cannot win. And now you have Hamas with the attack on Israel on October 7th and through uh, Hamas, through Hezbollah and through the Houthis, you have the United States at war with Iran because Iran is at war with us. Uh, people would look at a very askew at your statement that this has been a peaceful time. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> and they're just wrong. I mean, it's an, as I said, it's an ahistorical perspective. Talk about World War One. You know how many people were in the trenches in World War One? Millions. There were millions of people in those trenches in the Somme. And there were millions of casualties in the First and Second World War. Tens of thousands of Americans died in Vietnam over the course of a decade. 
we've had nothing even remotely approaching that to say nothing of uh, conflicts in the developing world, major, major wars between great powers has been something that was almost academic up until very recently when it has become an existential prospect. Uh, just if you look at only the body count alone, there's no comparison between the world of the American hegemony that has existed since 1991 and anything that came prior. And if you don't want to just look at casualty figures alone, you can look at GDP, expenditures, um, just the, the number of nations that are going to war with each other, nation states. Um, it just, nothing compares so, yes, I understand why people would want to think that they live in the end of history. It's a narcissistic view. It exists only with it can survive only by discounting the record that we all inherited. Uh, and it actually exists to justify a lot of, I think, dangerous policy prescriptions that recommend indeed uh, support the kind of retrenchment that Joe Biden is engaged in now. This is not a democratic phenomenon. There are plenty of Republicans. In fact, the oldest species of Republicanism prior to the Reagan revolution was a quasi-isolationism that regarded America's oceans as uh, a guarantee of our ability to remain distant from foreign obligations. Uh, so it's not, it's not right, weird for Americans to retreat to that point of view. It's just wrong. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, this this idea of America as the he, uh, the hegemonic power. Uh, I'm going to try and rephrase that a little bit. In well, I can the, define it. I can define it in terms that are like concrete. Let's start like, there. Let, let's start there, and, and we'll see where we go. Global hegemony means um, the United States is the sole superpower, hyperpower. We used to say right in the in the wake of the end of the Cold War, because the United States is the only power on the planet that is capable of projecting sustained force sustained, meaning over the course of months, even years, on the other side of the planet to a degree that would um, that would affect the kind of foreign policy outcomes that we would want to see, like, for example, remaking the face uh, of a nation state. The French can kind of do that. The British can kind of do that. Eh, not really, really in a sustained way. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians can project power across their borders. Can they project power across the planet Earth? No, they cannot. So that's what I mean by global hegemony. Well, let's now take it maybe as as it's seen under under Biden, because there is no projection. And what we have seen from the Houthi rebels in being able to take cargo ships, uh, take people prisoner, actually kidnap people. And these are not cave dwellers. These are well sophisticated, planned out attacks and the drops from helicopters and, and, and everything else. You're saying that what what Biden believes is in this in this dovish point of view that a level of diplomacy can actually bring these things to heel. And that is the show of American might as opposed to actual American might, which he's engaged in now with the United Kingdom in eight separate uh, uh, air raids, if you will, against the Houthis in Yemen that have produced zero results. So when does he learn that the dovish approach is a valueless one. And have we shown that the hawkish approach has changed anything? Well, I think it's too early to judge what the hawkish approach is. I mean, we do have some signs right now that degrading the Houthis' capability to project power into the Gulf of Dan and the Red Sea uh, are actually degrading their ability to project power. It's kind of what you would expect, whether it degrades their willingness to engage in these kind of piratical attacks, for example, and attacks on shipping uh, is another matter. They are well-equipped from Iran, and they show every indication of willing to expend 
all the all the ordinance that they've been bequeathed by their Iranian sponsors. That's something that we can do something about by taking those those ordinances out. We can't necessarily degrade their ability to uh, execute these attacks if they want to execute them, unless we were willing to put boots on the ground in Yemen or not. Uh, but we can partially neutralize the threat to a degree that they just can't execute it. But the Biden administration will be unwilling to do what I think it needs to do, which is to uh, impose uh, more caution on their sponsors and stop the tempo of events, not just in Iraq and in Yemen, rather, but in Syria and Iraq, where U.S. troops and U.S. positions have been under sustained attack since 10-7. Or, this is an Iranian campaign began on 10-7 with, as you say, the, their proxy in Hamas. And the only proxy that has been relatively quiet, and I say relatively advisedly, is the is Hezbollah. Um, and only because we've parked so many naval assets off the coast of the Levant in order to deter them. Deterrence isn't necessarily working against Iran, but it can. Uh, and it usually does when you hit them in the face. Uh, Ronald Reagan dropped a, a series of Iranian warships at the bottom of the Persian Gulf in the 1980s. Uh, Donald Trump executed the strike on Soleimani in 2020, and in both occasions, you saw you saw movement from the Iranians that communicate their willingness to de-escalate while just doing some face-saving maneuvers, like throwing some rockets at us. Uh, but it is nevertheless a de-escalatory posture. There are elements in the Iranian regime that know that if they got into a direct conflict with the United States, the Iranian regime would cease to exist. They don't want that. So they do exercise some caution when the costs of their campaigns become higher than they're willing to absorb. Right now, the benefits of this campaign is to force the United States to move assets around, to demonstrate that they can close off the Suez Canal to commerce whenever they want. Those are a lot of really tangible benefits for the regime. That's, Until we raise the costs, this is going to continue. This, this is my point, that that the all of these actions, the idea that we can punch them in the face and make it stop is predicated on the idea that we're willing to punch them in the face and Joe Biden isn't. Thus, I discuss a, a weak foreign policy. Of course, they clearly do feel that they are emboldened and capable. And it is more than just the United States here. It is the world allowing this to happen. So when we go back to this concept that you bring up about being the world he hegemonic power, I think the only question left is, are we really based on this philosophy, which seems to not only exist within the uh, Biden world, but also exists in serious pockets of the political right? Yeah, I think if we were, if I'd be very charitable. I, I do think there's an admirable quality to Americans generally who are reluctant to engage in the kind of behaviors and activities that are we need to engage in in order to preserve American geopolitical dominance. I don't think Americans really like having geopolitical dominance. They certainly don't like having obligations abroad, and they don't like being an imperial power. That's good. I mean, that's that's something that is noble and inherent in the American character. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too abstract about it because I disagree with it. But it is nevertheless a laudable disposition. The problem is that none of our no no other American adversary, either our near peer competitors or rogue states like Iran and North Korea, share that objective or that enterprise. Um, and they make no bones about their willingness to coordinate in the open directly in the form of military exercises, selling each other arms, supporting each other's enterprises, supporting each other's destabilizing activities. They're all engaged in one mission, very overtly, even explicitly, to put an end to the age of American dominance. After that, they can work out all the problems that they have behind the scenes. But the first task is get rid of the United States make it retrench, make it withdraw behind its borders, sacrifice its allies, an ally here, an interest there, an objective there, and all of it culminates 
in the end of the Pax Americana. Um, that's not something Americans should look forward to. The world that awaits us on the other side of that looks a lot like the world that we got a glimpse of on 10-7. Uh, be- before I-, I let you go, and 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 I, and I want to dig in a little bit, I only got about 60 seconds on the radio side here. Uh, I want to bring you to uh, last night, uh, the primary, uh, Trump uh, v. Haley, talk about two very different views of the world regarding uh, far- foreign policy. Trump uh, getting the 11-point uh, victory uh, were I uh, your take on whether there is still some rational path for Nikki Haley? Oh, I don't think so. I, I think this primary wraps up pretty quickly. But this is not something that I think Republicans should be celebrating necessarily. And the uh, Republicans who are interested in winning in November, um, New Hampshire looked a lot like the election in 2020 in microcosm. About 75 percent of Republicans turned out for Donald Trump. They made up 49 percent of the electorate and they're thrilled to vote for Trump. He mobilized a very similar, uh, the antonym, you know, the opposite reaction in his opponents, in the small number of Republicans who oppose him, who are dead set against not voting for him in November, by the way, if they mean what they're telling pollsters, and the independents and you know, the handful of Democrats who turned out to oppose him. He enthuses the people who oppose him as much, if not more, than the people who support him. I'm going uh, to be a right long there. road to hoe. I'm going to stop you right there. Noah Rothman, National Review. I'm Tony Katz. I went too long, but sometimes it's worth it. Find everything at TonyCats.com if you would. I'm back tomorrow, guys, so we have much more to get to. TonyCats.com. The videos, the podcast, uh, the the, the behind-the-scenes videos, it's all there. Tomorrow, everyone, until then, uh, have a bourbon, a, a, a cigar. Take care. <laughs>